Well, good morning once again. Uh, as you are turning with me again to John chapter 1, Gospel of John chapter 1, we'll be looking and reading together for the last time here in this study, the first 18 verses here in just a moment. As you're finding that, I want us to take a minute to remember uh, some of what we have seen so far. As we've started to try to understand this gospel, its purpose, and how it's been prepared. Now, we have seen that John is writing this to answer the question, who is Jesus? It's the question that he's driving at, and specifically the question, is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the Christ the Son of God, this is what he'll say in John 20, verse 31. We have learned to anticipate some of what he's going to do to accomplish this. Uh, We know now he's about to present to us a series of signs in the first half of this gospel, signs that testify to Jesus' claims, to his purpose, his person, his status. And we've learned that in this prologue in particular, these first 18 verses, John is asking us to already frame our minds in a couple of particular ways uh, concerning Jesus, even before we get into the narration, into the story. He is helping us to frame our minds with a couple of expectations about who this man will be when he appears here in the text. Uh, We've seen these two by now. Number one, Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. God himself came down took to himself true humanity, and put the divine glory on display. So we've seen verse 14 of this chapter. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. As that glory has the intended effect, as it does what it will do, in that way, secondly, we've seen that Jesus is the light of the world. He has enlightened the minds of his image bearers, so that knowledge of God permeates us. It doesn't matter if we want it or not. It permeates to our very being as humans. He is the light of the revelation of God, and he has come into the world. And we saw last week as well that he has also filled the world with witnesses to this light. Those who have not run from the light, but by God's grace, they've been brought, given eyes to see its beauty, and now they stand shoulder to shoulder as witnesses. All of this God has done, and he's done it because he loves us. He wants us to have life. And John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is life. And he came so that we might have life. And when we come to that light, when we come to the true knowledge of God, or as I love how Paul puts it elsewhere, as we come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he's so intentional in the way he says that, this is what is entailed in yet another metaphor that we're going to find in the Gospel of John and that we're going to find this morning. It's the metaphor of birth. So now we talk in terms of a new birth or being born again, language that we are very familiar with. That's a part of the way we talk because that's one of the metaphors that the gospel writers have chosen to convey this to us. And this morning, we're going to hear John pull all of this together as he ends his prologue. 
He'll do it in two remaining statements that we'll see this morning. He'll do it first by attributing the new birth to the sovereign working of God. So we'll look at verses 12 and 13 uh, to see that. And secondly, he'll do it by drawing all of it, that, and everything, it has, uh, everything else he has said so far to a final conclusion in verses 16 to 18 where he will tell us that Jesus Christ is, therefore, in every way, the supreme revelation of God. And he has revealed God successfully in that way by coming as the head of a new covenant. So this is essentially what we have this morning. We have new birth, verses 12 and 13, and then we have this final conclusion that fully lays out how Christ has come and accomplished what he's described to do here in these 18 verses. That'll be in verses 16 to 18. But for the last time, let's read again aloud the first 18 verses in their entirety. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We begin by hearing what he will tell us about this new birth. This is a metaphor that's going to be huge in the Gospel of John, but we haven't heard about it yet. We haven't thought about it together yet. Now, it, it comes off of verses 10 and 11. Do you remember how tragic are the things we hear in verses 10 and 11? He came to the world that he had made, and it did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, that's a tragedy. 
But if, if that is a true statement, if it's a true generalization about the reception that the world gave to its maker when he came, it is not the final word on the matter, is it? It's not the final word on the rescue mission that the word of God has engaged in. There were some who did receive him, who did believe in his name. They did receive him as he presented himself, as Savior and Lord. The first question I want us to think about together this morning is, what does verse 12 tell us about what Jesus did for them? Look at verse 12. We looked at the first piece of that verse last week. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, how does it end? What does it tell us that Jesus did for them? Well, we read this. He gave the right to become children of God. That is an incredibly profound statement. And we need to look at two pieces of it in particular. The first thing it says is that he gave the right that they should be called the children of God. They have received full authority to this exalted title of child of God. And this is well translated in every English Bible I have come across, except for one, interestingly. The King James Bible is the only one I've found that chooses a different way to translate this. It says that he, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. Now, power is a secondary meaning of this word. It can mean power sometimes, not as often as this meaning right or authority, but it can mean that sometimes. But it's very obviously not the idea here, which is why every other English Bible opts for the first definition, the more common one, the right. He gave the right to become, the authority to become. What would it be suggesting if it said God gave them power to become the sons of God? Do you see how that might actually convey a very different idea? I would suggest to you that it would, it would say precisely the opposite of what thir verse 13 is about to tell us. It would suggest that what happens here is that they are given a certain power which they can then make use of to somehow make themselves children of God. They were given the power to become children of God. No, that's not what John is saying here at all. What he's saying is that King Jesus has issued a royal grant. King Jesus has granted them the authority to bear that title. And I don't have to tell you that there are uh, moments in our lives where that becomes very precious to us, to know that that's how this works. That's what he has done. As, as we walk in our lives as Christians, one of the things that the blessed Holy Spirit is doing in us is he is growing us in our sanctification, isn't he? And that's been likened to a guest in a house that's going about opening up doors that have been closed and locked because the, the owner does not want to see what's behind those doors. And he, in his kindness, opens those doors, cleans them out, uh, but we have to be exposed to what's behind those doors. We don't want to be exposed to what's behind those doors. That's painful. It's shameful. And as the Holy Spirit is at work in God's people, we are becoming more and more aware of our own sinfulness, aren't we? And there can be times where that is happening in a way that, that simply strikes us. I mean, it can make you sit down 
with the realization of just how unworthy you are to be thought of as a child of God himself. Has that ever happened to you? And here's where this verse comes in. Listen, we, we do not have the right to be called a child of God because we have earned that right. We have that right because King Jesus gave it to us. He gave the right to become children of God. The second piece of that is just as important as that one is. He gave the right to become children of God. You see how he puts it? We shouldn't miss here that if we are becoming his children by this royal grant, what does that mean about us before he decided to grant us that royal grant? If we're becoming the children of God through this edict, then that means that a change of status has taken place, doesn't it? We are becoming what we were not before. And the Bible speaks of that reality, of that transition, in really two ways. This way, and also in the language of passing from death to life. doesn't surprise us because of what we've seen about life in these first 18 verses already. And we saw last week that to be cut off from relationship with our maker, that's what biblical death is. We read in John 5, 24, Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now listen to this. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the picture. Uh, when one is shown the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, one comes to that light in all the ways we've been seeing in the past few weeks. What's happened to that person? They have passed from death to life. <laughs> what happened. It also speaks of it in the way that we see here, though, that it tells us that the nature of our relationship to our Heavenly Father is one of adoption. Oh, how crucial is the doctrine of adoption in our understanding of what God has done in saving us. Adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says that we were predestined for this adoption as sons. This has been God's eternal plan. And Galatians 4, 5 says that the purpose of Christ's redemption was, quote, that we might receive adoption as sons. This is what God is doing. So we know that we're talking about an adoptive relationship here. When we are born, we are not physically born into this child-father relationship with our God. We are born into this world estranged from him. We are born into this world as his enemies, not as his children. And there's one place in particular, the Bible speaks of this all over the place in the New Testament, but the one that I would have you put your eyes on here, uh, because we don't want to, uh, I don't want you to just hear it, I want you to hear it and see it again, is Ephesians chapter 2. Would you keep your finger here in John and just go over to Ephesians 2 for a moment? It's just powerful enough to do this. And also, it brings both of these pictures together, the death-life picture and the reality of the necessity of adoption. Let me read the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And stop there. We were not alive spiritually when we were born physically. We were dead. How many of us were dead? Well, as many as belong to the rest of mankind. As many as belong to mankind, this is our plight. And we certainly were in a kind of child relationship, according to verse 3. Do you see it there? It's just not child of God. No, we were, he says, by nature, children of wrath. The life that he came to give us is the light by which we believe in his name. And to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. If you're still in Ephesians, you can come back to Gospel of John. The whole point, then, of verse 13 is to assign blame for all that. <laughs> who is to blame for this new birth that God's people undergo? And you can, you can tell just by reading it that there are, in verse 13, three potential recipients of this blame. Or maybe we should just say credit, because we're, we're talking about a good thing here, becoming a child of God. There are three potential recipients of this credit that he rules out, one after the other. It's like Joseph's older brothers in the Old Testament. They're presented for consideration and eliminated from consideration. That's what he does here with these three. Verse 13, he says of these children of God, he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of, first, Blood. It's plural, literally, not of bloods. He's talking about the mixing of two bloodlines in natural descent. So this is talking about your family heritage, your bloodline. And this means that heritage and race, and even the Jewish race, are irrelevant to spiritual birth. Spiritual birth is not a thing that comes by means of physical descent, physical line. It didn't come to them, secondly, by the will of the flesh, he says. And it's not unclear what he means here. In terms of the actual uh, expression, there's a mixed verdict on what he's emphasizing. It's will of the flesh. This is either talking about simply human desire, or it may be something of a euphemism, an expression that is referring to sexual desire. Uh, either way, the point is the same. The child that he's describing here did not receive the status of child, because of some person's desire, some human person's desire. And thirdly, it didn't come to them by the will of man. That's really basically saying the same thing that the second was saying. But it's emphasizing that this privilege didn't come about from a father, a human father's desire or plan for his children. The word for man here is not the word for mankind, it's the word for male person or husband. Not in general. So it's almost, it, I think it helps to see it as kind of a subset or a more specific statement that means the same thing of that second one. And he's sort of piling these up on one another to make a, a singular point. 
Listen to what Leon Morris says about the point. He says, the piling up of these expressions is to be understood in light of Jewish pride of race. The Jews held that because of the fathers, that is, their great ancestors, God would be favorable to them. John emphatically repudiates any such idea. Nothing human can bring about the birth of which he speaks. This threefold negation eliminates the expectation of Jewish superiority, maybe to some of his original audience, but it also eliminates, does it not? The expectation of human participation of any kind. This is very properly described as a new birth upon which we exert no influence. It is of God. And I, I, I like, I'm very thankful for the new birth metaphor that he gives us in these sorts of passages because it's so effective. If you have been born again, if you are a Christian, if you've been born again, you had as much influence on that birth as you did on your natural birth, which is to say, none at all. But at least it could be said when we're talking about natural birth, at least it could be said that our parents had a decent amount of responsibility there in our natural birth. But here, even that is ruled out, isn't it? We do well to remember that as parents. I have heard it put this way, it's always stuck with me, that God has children, he does not have grandchildren. God has children, he does not have grandchildren. You see what is meant by that? that? No one has been born again by virtue of the desire or action of their natural parents. Now obviously, let's not, let's not go too far with what we're trying to say about parents and their role. Is it true that God mightily uses parents in his providence and love for those children as tools in his hand? I mean, there's no question about that. Don't get me wrong. The question is, uh, how much power do those parents have in and of themselves to affect this new birth? And the answer is zero power. Zero. That is what drives us to our knees, isn't it? As parents or as those who have children in their lives that they love and care for and want to come to the Lord, it drives us all to our knees in prayer on their behalf. Prayer to the God on whose mercy this new birth absolutely depends. So we've seen in verses 12 and 13 that this entire process of God's kind mercy in his rescue mission into the darkness has the outcome that by his grace some receive the right to become children of God. I want us to go down now to verses 16 to 18 and start to put it all together and hear John's final conclusion in this prologue. And what I want us to see here is that Jesus has done all of this, this light mission of coming in and making children of God, truly bringing salvific knowledge of the, uh, of, of the God uh, that we must believe on and trust in to be saved. Jesus has done this by coming as the head of a covenant, a never-ending covenant through which men actually come to know God. 
Let's walk through a few things that we need to understand here and then put it all together. You need to understand, firstly, that verse 15 is a parenthetical statement. That's why if you're holding one of our ESV Bibles and, and other English translations as well, actually put it in parentheses in your Bible there. Uh, there's a reason for that. That wasn't just a casual decision. We can tell that it is meant to be parenthetical for a couple of reasons in verse 14. Uh, one of those is the word for. You see how verse 16 starts with the word for? That for is continuing on what was said in verse 14. It doesn't have any connection to verse 15. So 14, he is full of grace and truth. 16, for from his fullness we have all received. And by the way, who's the we in verse 16? Verse 15 was talking about John the Baptist. Who's the we? Well, it's the we that was brought in in verse 14. Verse 14 told us the word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He began speaking about the witnesses to the light. And verse 15 breaks in with an interjection about John the Baptist. But that subject from verse 14, John and the other witnesses, that's the subject of verse 16 as well, isn't it? For from his fullness we have all received. These are the ways we can tell we're supposed to jump from 14 to 16 when we're understanding 16. Verse 15 is a parenthetical statement. And once we're moving smoothly like that, from 14 to 16, we can hear him better. Uh, secondly, remember, we saw last week that when he says in verse 14 that Jesus' glory was full of grace and truth, we saw then that he was saying this is divine glory on display in the God-man Jesus Christ. This is Exodus 33 glory, the glory that is the name of God on display. That's what this glory is. Now, verse 16, he says, It is from that fullness that we, those to whom Christ has revealed the Father, it's from that fullness that we have all received. Now, what he's going to do here, and this is the last thing for us to see, he is going to compare this final revelation of God that is these things the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, becoming flesh and living among us. He's going to say, he's going to compare that final revelation of God with what came before it. And specifically, he's going to compare it with the covenant, the kind, gracious covenant from God that came before it. If you thought that by finishing our study of the book of Galatians, we were done talking about covenants, not only were you wrong, but it was really inevitable that you would be wrong because it is such a repeated teaching that the New Testament brings us. So much time and effort brought to the cause of helping us understand what the new covenant is, how it is different, how it is to be fleshed out, what are the consequences of. We think of covenant and new covenant teaching in terms of Paul often because he spends so much time explaining this, doesn't he? That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. Spends a lot of time to the Corinthians and other places. But it's here in the Gospel of John, as we're about to see. It's huge in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the key themes to the book of Hebrews. Well, here in John, this is how he ends this prologue. And it has to be 
Because Christ revealing God to his people in a salvific way, that is the new covenant that Christ has brought. It's as the head of that covenant that Jesus is doing this. So let's see this. Number one, notice that he says uh, that our great reception from Christ, verse 16, he calls it grace upon grace. Do you see that? It can be a little misleading, potentially. Other translations say it differently, and some do a better job, I think, of getting the idea across. I think the NIV, interestingly, does the best job, and I'll tell you why. But here's how they translate this. They say in verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And that's because the single word used here between, you got grace and grace, you have a word in between. It means instead of. The word is anti, grace, anti, grace. That word means instead of. Matthew 2, 22, Archelaus was reigning over Judea, anti, his father Herod. Instead of his father Herod, or in the place of. The ESV says it as in the place of his father Herod. Luke 11, 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead, will auntie of a fish, give him a serpent? Your son comes and asks you for a fish, which one of you is going to give him a serpent in its place instead of it? Matthew 5, 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye, auntie, an eye, and a tooth, auntie, a tooth. And we say what? An eye for an eye. But what do we mean? An eye in the place of the eye that was, uh, that was damaged. You see, in these, the idea here, it's not just an idea of one thing added to another. It's the idea of one thing given in the stead of another that was already there. Grace in place of grace already given. So he's describing two graces. What are these graces? Well, he doesn't leave us to scratch our heads over that. Why would he do that? Verse 17 lays out for us very clearly the two graces he's describing. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace already given. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These are the two. He's describing the grace that has come in Christ compared with the grace that came in the Old Covenant. Exodus 33, we saw it in weeks past, God revealed his name to Moses, didn't he, upon request. Was that owed to Moses? So it was a gracious thing that God did in revealing himself in that way. And Moses beheld glory, but here's what we have to do along with John. You have to compare the two situations. So with Moses in Exodus 33, he beheld glory when he heard the name spoken by God. We have seen this glory, John says, on display in Christ. Moses was used to bring a covenant, which was certainly a gracious thing, grace upon grace. And we'll see in a moment, it had a glory all of its own because it did reveal truth about God. Truth was revealed about this God from his gracious interaction by means of an old covenant. But whereas the full revelation of God's glory full of grace and truth, was declared to Moses in Exodus 33. And the encounter even caused Moses' face to shine, didn't it? Remember that? What did it not do? 
Well, it didn't transform God's people, did it? Even that display of glory got a veil put over it because the people couldn't bear to look at it. Even as that experience, that gracious experience of God's glory was being declared to Moses, the people were down at the base of the mountain building an idol to bow down before and worship it changed them. And what came out of that revelation of God's glory was, what came out of that with Moses? What did he come down with? What came out of that revelation of God's glory was a law that although it did reveal truth about God's character and it continues to do so, it had no power in itself to affect transformation, did it? That is not true about the revelation of God that Jesus Christ brings to his people. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Can you tell the next thing that we need to notice? <laughs> it's a verb thing. I tried to put it in my voice. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Many commentators see uh, something very powerful in the choice of words John's using here. You have this passive, weak verb, uh, the law was given through Moses. Then you have, by comparison, when he describes the relationship between grace and truth, which is divine glory on display, when he describes the relationship between grace and truth and Jesus, he uses the same word he's already used five times in this section. It's the word aginata. Let me show you where this is. Verse 3, through him all things aginata, and without him aginata, not one thing that has been aginata. Verse 6, a man aginata, sent from God whose name was John. Verse 10, the world was aginata through him. Is this simply a description of one thing moving from one place to another? Verse 14, and the word aginata flesh and dwelt among us. And now verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth aginata through Jesus Christ. It did not just come near through him. It is him. It exists through him. His coming is an altogether different and greater thing than any revelation of God this world has ever received or could ever receive. Now we'll start to close this out, but I'd like to read something in this light that another apostle wrote in another context. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'll read verses 4 to 16. Well, I'll read 4 to 8 and then 12 to 16. Or you could just listen to it now that you've heard what we're hearing here in John. You see if this sounds familiar. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death 
carved in letters on stone. What do you think he might be referring to there? If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was bring, being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Hmm. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I find this amazing. Far more technical and detailed than John in our passage, but the same message. And speaking of a veil, speaking of blocked sight of glory, look quickly and finally at verse 18 of our passage. No one has ever seen God. Even Moses, when God shows him his glory, is put nose first into the side of the mountain and let to see the glory of the back of God, as it were. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Helpful distinctions about the persons of the Trinity even here. He is not at God's side. He is God. He is at the Father's side. The Son is not the Father, but the Son is God. He is still here in verse 18, contrasting the two covenants. The law brought a display, a revelation of God's character. But while sinful man can be confronted by the law and stand condemned by its revelation, isn't that true? Sinful man can never be confronted by the law and be saved by it. Because the law does not have the power to put the knowledge of God into the hearts of that sinful man and bring him to life. Bring him, that is, to know God. It reveals God. It cannot, by itself, bring someone to know God. It cannot bring them to life. And Jesus has made God known to his people. We are very prepared to watch the ministry of this word made flesh dwelling among us if we see him as he is portrayed here, if our minds are prepared in this way. And it answers so many questions for us as we're closing here. Do, do you want to be, I had to look up some, some <laughs> maybe common or popular ways to say this sort of thing. Uh, do you want to be more spiritual? Do you want to grow in your spiritual health? Do you want to get in touch with spirituality? What an exciting journey that will be if you choose that. Where does that journey begin? It begins with knowing Jesus. Where will it end? Who is to say? God is to say. It will end with knowing Jesus. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How have you been with me so long and can say, show us the Father? It begins and ends with knowing Jesus. 
And if that sounds trite to you, it's because you have no idea who you were talking about. You don't know whose name you're using when you say that. John 6, 29, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Period. End quote. Don't go searching. Don't go searching, my friends, for fool's gold. Don't let discontentment with the means that God has provided in his son and through his people, don't let discontentment drive you toward clouds without rain. Jeremiah 2.13, we read this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Don't go try to dig wells where there is no water. Drink the water that Jesus is about to claim in this gospel that he brings, that creates a well of water inside of you, springing up to eternal life. You think he was making that picture up from nowhere? He certainly could have. But he's not in that case. He's pointing back to condemnations in the Old Testament of what God's people have done when he is the fountain of water. Thirst for a clearer, deeper knowledge of Jesus. Trust him when he says that if you want life and life abundantly, all you need is him. Bank your life on that claim of his. Chase after him. Learn his words. Learn his ways. Follow his commands. Love his people. Rest in his finished work. Chase after him. And see if he wasn't telling you the truth all along. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is the eternal plan of the triune God that we have seen on display this morning. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son that through his work of redemption, we might receive this adoption that we are hearing about. We trust this morning that it is your spirit at work doing what he always does, and that is leading us back, always back, to the knowledge of our Savior. And I pray for all of your children here this morning. Please, Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to keep searching out our satisfaction in this life, only in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.